As my dad often reminded me growing up, success is a poor teacher. Failure, though, is a cruel teacher. So obviously, we want to learn from the failures of others. But it can be hard to find authors who are willing to talk honestly about their failures. Well, not today. Author Media presents the Christian Publishing Show. This is the podcast for writers who want to advance the kingdom using the written word, and they want to do it well. The blog post version of this podcast is brought to you by the Christian Indie Publishers Association. More about them at the end of the episode. And we have a guest on the show today who's made a number of mistakes in his writing and publishing journey, and he'd like to share those experiences with us. Uh, He's the Director of Outreach and Community at StoryEmbers.org, which is a site dedicated to helping Christian storytellers enthrall readers through exceptional storytelling that honestly depicts God's reality. He's also an epic fantasy novelist. Deus Lamb, welcome to the Christian Publishing Show. Thank you, Thomas. And surprisingly, I'm actually excited to talk about my failures today. (laughs) So yeah, let's just jump into it. What was the first thing you had to learn the hard way on your publishing journey? For years, I went writing without any professional help. I would have some great beta readers who give me fantastic feedback, but no coaches, no editors, nothing I paid for. And that ended up being a big mistake. When I finally launched my first lead magnet and got an editor for that, I was really blown away with not only how much I had to grow, but how much I did grow when I went through that feedback. It was like getting a college course in writing just to go through those pages of pages of red lines and everything being completely rewritten. And my writing has never been the same. That was one of the biggest moments in my entire writing career. And after that, I came away thinking, why didn't I just spend $200 on getting a short story edited three years ago? Sure, I wouldn't have been able to publish it. I wasn't that good then. But I grew more in one month with those edits from a professional editor than I did in six months, just pounding away on my own. There's a saying in Boy Scouts that one week of canoe training is better than a lifetime of paddling around the lake. Because you can do the same bad techniques your whole life and not know that they're bad techniques. And there's this difference between practice and deliberate practice. People often hear about the 10,000 hour rule, which comes from the myth of talent, which is a very famous book. And one of the things it points out is that people often between their breakout success and when they get started is around 10,000 hours of deliberate practice. And a lot of people are like, oh, okay, so all I have to do is write for 10,000 hours and then I'll be a success. It's like, no, that's practice. It's not deliberate practice. And what makes the difference is having a coach, having somebody giving you feedback This is why every sports team in the world has a coach. But it can also be something as simple as things like reading your book out loud to yourself where you're hearing it, right? Where you're where where it makes it painful. If it's too fun, it's not deliberate practice because you're not challenging yourself to get better. We had Jerry Jenkins on the show uh, a while back and he talked about how he wrote an entire book without dialogue attribution tags, just as an act of deliberate practice to get better as a writer. And this is after he'd sold you know, a billion dollars worth of books. He's still working on his craft, working on getting better. And that's the kind of challenge that transforms writing from just regular practice to deliberate practice. And every writer needs an editor. And 
getting that short story edited and getting that feedback is way better than having an editor point out the same mistake for 200 pages or 500 pages in your epic novel. Right. The lead magnet was only a novella. And by the time I got through it, I was used to hearing the same corrections. I had got it. I got the lesson. I wrote them down. I memorized them. So I didn't need to pay thousand, $2,000 to have a whole novel edited. I just needed a novella. Yeah. And if you're not writing short stories, you are making your life a lot harder. Learn how to be faithful in the short stories and then try to write the longer works. So so what was another failure that you learned from? Well, since you spoiled it already, I, I didn't write enough short fiction. <laughs> that was uh, a similar problem. I actually wrote two full novels in omniscient point of view, which is that uh, really old style. A lot of the classics are written in. I wrote that way just because I read so many classics. And it wasn't until the third novel that I figured out, you know, this is not what I'm really great at. And if I had written more short stories, I'm sure I would have figured that out earlier. I did try to experiment in short stories. And now you can't just, like you said, it's not just about practice. It's about intentional practice. You can't just write 10 short stories. You got to try different things in the short stories to push yourself and test out what you're good at and not good at. You can also get more feedback on short stories. I mean, ask if someone to beta read a huge novel, and that's a commitment, but a short story, people are more likely to say yes to. That's right. And I encourage every one of you who, if you're a novelist, to write one short story in each of the three major points of view. Write one short story mm-hmm. in Omniscient just to try it out, just to learn what Omniscient feels like. Write one in third person and write one in first person. And you will become a dramatically better writer, forcing yourself out of your comfort zone. Because most of us default to one of those three. You don't have to publish these. You don't have to sell them to an (laughs) anthology. This is just working on your craft, working to get better. And who knows, you may find, I really like writing in first person. Because readers like all three. I read books in all three. I like third person the least. It's the most common and the most boring, but it's what most authors write in. (laughs) But I always get excited when an author is willing to put in the work because writing in first person is potentially harder. Writing in omniscient is a lot harder. It's a lot more work to do that and maintain the tension. But it can be done, and some authors do it really well. (laughs) And a lot of authors do it really poorly. (laughs) But at least try it out in a short story with each one of those, and uh, you'll find it's a lot of fun. And who knows? You may transform into a whole new kind of writer. I'd even say try different genres. I was inspired to write like the classics because that's what I read. But now I'm an epic fantasy novelist and I love it. Yeah. So what were some other lessons that you learned the hard way? One of the biggest ones is that I probably have wasted hundreds, thousands of hours, years of my life based on one misconception. And that misconception was if you write fast Surely you must be writing poorly. Mm. And that misconception's evil twin. If you're writing slow, surely it must be good. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. That I think I believe that one too is to some degree. <laughs> I used to write probably about sometimes even less than 500 words an hour. I was just a slow, slow writer. Then eventually what triggered me writing faster is I was moving from working part-time to now I need to get a full-time job. And I thought, oh, there goes my writing time. I'm only going to have a little time in the evening. How am I still going to write these epic fantasy novels, which are massive? And the only answer was I have to write faster. I have to do it. And I was skeptical, but I went and got Chris Fox's book, How to Write uh, 5,000 Words 
in an hour. And um, sorry to say, I, I don't write 5,000 words an hour, but my writing speed tripled in like three days. That is such a common story. I'm starting to believe that there's two kinds of writers. Those who've given Chris Fox's books and courses a <laughs> try and those who tell themselves it won't work for them <laughs> and won't even and won't even read the book, won't even try it because they're like, well, that's impossible. And I, I've done webinars with Chris Fox. I've had him on the Novel Marketing Podcast several times to talk about. One, we did a whole episode just on his book, How to Write 5,000 Words an Hour. Did another one on How to Write a Million Words a Year. And what Chris Fox believes, and I really agree with him, is that getting into the zone, it helps you not only write faster, but also write better. And learning how to get into that zone makes you better and faster. And if you're not there, or if you only taste the zone every once in a while, spending a little time learning how to get into the zone more consistently can transform your writing in really dramatic ways. I think why I was writing so slow in the past was not because I was a slow thinker, it was not because I just didn't know how to write. It was because there was all this fluff, junk going on in my head. And telling myself after it faster got rid of not the good thoughts, but the unnecessary ones. I love that. All right. What else have you learned the hard way? I started writing when I was 17 years old. So I was still living at home at this time with my parents. Great. You don't have to pay for rent and all those expensive bills. So I thought, hey, I want to be a full-time writer. And so I'm going to need plenty of writing experience to become an excellent writer. I'm going to need to have time to build a platform, blah, blah, blah. And so I spent hours a day working on that writing. Unfortunately, as you now know, um, writing very slowly and wasting that time. But it didn't feel like it at the time. You're like, I'm making the sacrifice. I'm making a masterpiece. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It felt like the right thing to do. Absolutely. I was like, I'm making this heroic sacrifice and it's going to be worth it in the end, but it wasn't worth it in the end. And uh, I did work part-time through that, but it wasn't your normal part-time job. It was a little more scattered and I was paying for some expenses and building some savings, but it wasn't terribly much. And what I would do if I were going back to relive those years is I would get a part-time job where I worked about 20 hours a week, try to earn at least 10000 a year. And then I would stock that towards really spend that money on editors, writing coaches, get that professional feedback right away, get courses. And having those time limits, that's what launched me into learning to write faster. And so if I had had less time to write, I think I might have even got more writing done. This is also true at the end of your career. So some people tell themselves, oh, if I only retire, then I can have more time to write and I will write more books. And this is, in my experience, almost never the case. <laughs> I see people retiring to work on their craft, but it often doesn't improve their output because when it comes right down to it, it wasn't really a lack of time that was holding you back. It felt like a lack of time. But we all have the same time. We all have the same 24 hours a day. And, and I learned a long time ago when somebody says, I don't have the time for that, what they're really saying is that's not a high priority for me, which means they're, what they're really saying is there are other things in my life that are a higher priority, <laughs> right? It's like, how do children spell love? T-I-M-E. When you say, sorry, kid, I don't have time for you. What you're really saying is this other thing I'm doing is, is more important. But <laughs> getting a big inheritance of time, right? Going from working full time to not working at all 
can often be really difficult transition. Uh, so what was the next thing that you learned the hard way? Well, I just recently launched my first big novel and uh, I learned some hard lessons from that. The first is that I probably would have not have made this big novel I spent three years writing the first book I launched. I had trouble getting reviews. I didn't build up enough before the launch. It was a little rushed. And I, there are definitely things I would have done differently. And yes, I, I should do better next time. But what if I had done, instead of this massive novel, just a novella I wrote in two, three months? Then I would have put way less time into it. And I now have those lessons learned for the novel that I really care about so much more. This is one of my book marketing 10 commandments is not to publish your first book first, because this is, I think, the most common mistake that authors make. They have a story in their heart and they write that story and then they want to publish that story. And they don't realize that the purpose of the first book is to teach you how to write a book. It's not really to be this masterpiece that you can sell. And oftentimes, especially in epic fantasy, it's just too long. And especially if you're going indie, because the, the way the economics work, indie publishing for paper works really good between 200 and 250 pages. And once you go beyond 250 pages, especially when you go a lot beyond it, the numbers just completely fall apart and everyone is losing money and the books are way too expensive and readers don't want to read them. And it's hard to get reviews because they're too long and the books are just too long. <laughs> and it's like, but it's epic <laughs> fantasy. People like long books. And it's like, sure, they do. And they'll buy the ebook for it and they'll listen to the audiobook for it. But it kills paper as a potential reading mechanism because the pricing just doesn't work. Uh, what I would recommend if you're planning to go indie is to release that story in smaller chunks. Try to get those chunks into 200, 250 pages. 250 pages is a satisfying amount of book, especially if it's part one of some big, long series. And it fits on a shelf. It doesn't hurt your nose if you fall asleep while you're reading it. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yes, Brandon Sanderson can write a 700-page book. Robert Jordan can write a 900-page book, and a lot of people will buy it. But the economics only work because they're printing hundreds of thousands of those books, and they're able to print them cheap enough where they're still affordable. You can't do that if you're indie published. You can't print 100,000 copies and no one really talks about this. <laughs> and, and it's a real challenge for fantasy publishers that are using print-on-demand. Because print-on-demand technology doesn't play nice with really long books because you effectively are paying by the page. So a 400-page book is twice as expensive to print as a 200-page book. But readers are not willing to pay twice as much. They don't want to pay $30 for it. They still want to pay $15 for it. But if it's costing you mm -hmm. $10 to print it, and then Amazon's taking 70%, <laughs> everyone's losing money. Yeah, I'm glad you do talk about that on the podcast because I don't think I have heard that elsewhere. And hopefully in the future, I'll either be printing thousands of books or I'll be writing shorter stories. This one was only, I think, just short of 400 pages, but that's still pretty long. Well, let's get real specific. How much does it cost to print that book? I mean, I know printing prices are going through the roof right now. So for those of you in the far future, I know you're going to, be envious of whatever this number is, but it's going to be scary for those of us in the present. I think it's $8 to print the book. So for you to order a copy for yourself, buying at cost, it's $8 plus shipping, which means if you want to go to a conference and you're looking at a $10, $9 per book cost just to buy it. Now, for some comparison, 
that hardback Harry Potter that they printed a million copies of may have only cost them a dollar a copy <laughs> to print. You know, it cost them a million dollars to print a million copies of the book, maybe two million. So they're at a dollar, two dollars of cost, whereas you're at ten dollars of cost. That is not a little bit more expensive. That is just uncalculably more expensive. Whereas if you were at yeah. 200 pages, you'd be closer to that $4 range for, for the cost of the book, which is a lot easier to work with. So what's your next lesson that you learned the hard way? Well, I did actually launch the first book I ever wrote. And I'm ashamed to say it, but thankfully, it's uh, pretty much removed off the internet now. So if you search <laughs> for it, I don't think you'll find it. And my parents told me, Deus, I don't think this book is ready to be published. But I guess I'm too much of an optimist. So trust your parents. That's another lesson. <laughs> if your parents love you, they, they know what's best. You know, there's a saying, a face only a mother could love. It's really true. Mothers generally don't look at their babies and be like, oh, that's an ugly baby. And yet, there are a lot of ugly babies in this world. And it's really hard to hear that your baby is ugly. And no author wants to hear that their book isn't ready or the book is not good enough. And since it mm. looks good to them, since they're blind to the flaws, because beauty's in the eye of the beholder and love covers a multitude of defects, you love your story. You can't see the defects. And it's really hard to get that perspective. And the people who love you sometimes won't give you that feedback. So the fact you had parents telling you this isn't ready, that means it really wasn't ready. Because <laughs> yeah. parents well, are like, oh, it's, it's good. It's good. <laughs> and, and so here's my advice to tr when you're trying to get feedback. Don't listen to what people say. Look at what they do. Mm. And when you know it's good when people say, how can I buy this for a friend? That's when you know it's a good book. If people aren't asking that, it's not ready. Or, or it's not ready to go viral. Because the books that are really good, people are like, I want to buy a box of these. When I was in college, there was a book that changed my life. One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven. I think I bought 100 copies of that book. <laughs> I was handing that out all over campus. That's what you're looking for. You're looking for that kind of response. And that's when you know it's ready. So what's the next lesson that you learned the hard way? So moving back to this book I just launched that didn't do as well as I hoped, I mentioned I really struggled with getting reviews. And I actually had a decent number of people sign up to read the book and leave a review. And I read that about one third of those who sign up will actually leave a review. And that ended up being exactly right to the dot. But what I didn't know is that people often take a lot of nudging to leave that review. And I didn't plan enough time for that. So I would have given myself more time. But also, I noticed a big difference between those I just emailed, reminding, hey, the book's out, would you leave a review? And those I actually texted got back to me. I got few replies to emails and they acted sooner. So in the future, when I have a form where people will say, yes, I want to be a early reviewer, I'm definitely going to ask for their phone number so I can text them to stay in touch. And that's more conversational. It's more friendly. And so this means you have a real strong personal connection with those reviewers. And because that's where your first reviews come from your friends and family. And if you can't get them on board, it's hard to get anybody else on board because uh, they already at least know who you are. So what are some other mistakes that you made the hard way? Well, I went my whole writing life without any specific mentor. And it's funny, now I'm telling other writers who are just starting on the journey, man, you need to get a mentor. And uh, someone just asked me, how do I get a mentor? I was like, well, you didn't come to the right person because I don't have one. <laughs> but I really wish I had gotten a mentor because 
there are so many times, and we've discussed many of them already, where I was at a fork in the road, like when I published that first book that wasn't ready. And I got feedback from my parents and from some other people who maybe were questioning me publishing that, but they weren't experts in my eyes, even though I should have counted them as experts, just because they weren't writers or they didn't read my genre. I can't even remember all my reasons. But if I had someone who had gone down the road, made as many mistakes as I've now made, and told me, don't make that mistake, let me tell you what happens when you do that, then I could have avoided these mistakes. I might have had only four mistakes instead of 14 to tell you about today. But then that would have made a less interesting podcast. Yeah. And that's why I launched the author media mastermind groups. It was to help Mm. with that very thing. So we have three mastermind groups. We have one for novelists who are unpublished. We have one for, I call influencers, but it's a nonfiction expert track. And then the third group is published authors, where it's less focused on craft and more focused on kind of the career of writing. And it's a lot of folks who are writing their second, third or 20th book. And those have been a lot of fun. And it's been fun working with authors through their careers as they're getting started and helping them avoid some of these mistakes. I think there's a couple of challenges that keep people from finding a mentor. One is they're too picky and they're like, well, you're not the perfect person. Only Jerry Jenkins could be my mentor. Or only Brandon Sanderson could be my mentor. It's like they're not doing a lot of mentoring. <laughs> it's like they have the, they're limited. And the really successful authors often they may not do any mentoring in the height of their career because they're busy writing books. And the, I think the other challenge is being willing to spend money for it because it feels very expensive. But really, time is your most precious resource. And learning things the hard way is actually the more expensive way to do it, I think. Hopefully someday I can get on that program because I know I I still need mentorship. Even though I've learned many lessons, there's other lessons I still need to learn. That's right. Avoid doing a part two of this episode. It's like 10 more mistakes that I made. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I I do not want to get invited back for that talk. (laughs) So uh, what are some other things that you had to learn the hard way while we're digging through all your painful memories? Right. Moving a little more into the writing craft aspect of it. I ignored my character's backstories for years. Somehow I figured that since the backstory didn't actually come into the plot I was writing, that it didn't matter. And as soon as I changed that, as soon as I started focusing on backstories, I knew my character so much better. It's just one of those things that I guess I'm proud or whatnot that I'm not going to try these things other people say work. I was always skeptical of writing character journal entries. I thought, ah, it just sounds cheesy. But as soon as I tried it, it was amazing. It helped me get a great breakthrough on a character I didn't understand deeply enough. Yeah, I I don't know a nice way to say this to authors, but I need to find one. So maybe you can help me find one. It's like, I want to tell Uh authors, you are not special. It's like the rules do still apply to you. And being called by God doesn't suddenly make the rules no longer apply. You don't still have to learn the lessons and to do the work because a lot of people are like I'm called by God and therefore I don't have to work hard. I'm like, where is that written? <laughs> show, show me that. <laughs> That'd be a great passage, right? It's like, look, <laughs> see, it says right here, I don't have to work hard. It's like, no, you have to do the work. And part of that, you're not special is don't knock a technique that other successful authors are using until you've tried it, right? It may mm-hmm. be 
that you don't like it. Right? There's this Mexican spice here in Texas called tahine. And a friend of mine's like, you got to put this on watermelon. It's really good. And it's this like salty, chili powder. And I'm like, that is not going to taste good on watermelon. But you know what? I will try it because I'm curious. And I tried it. And you know what? I was 100% wrong. Tahine on watermelon is like the greatest thing. What? <laughs> you know, it's like, I get it now. And there's a lot of techniques like that in writing that seems silly, right? Like, why am I writing a journal entry for this character? Well, the better you understand the character, the more consistent they are, the more different they are from your other characters, and the more interesting your book is. And going back to what we talked about earlier, writing short stories, write short stories, scenes that your characters are in before your main story starts, right? You can write Mm. backstory short stories and explore the character. My brother's doing this in one of his epic fantasies he's working on. There's this town, and to explore the town and develop the town, he's writing uh, a whole series of short stories with one of the tavern owners. <laughs> and the tavern oh, owner wow. isn't even a character in the book, but he's a really interesting character, and the tavern is a really interesting location, and it helps him explore all the kind of quirky things about the city. Uh, so what are some other things that you learned the hard way? Well, also with craft, I, f- for the longest time, ignored scene structure. I read Cam Weiland's book, How to Structure Your Novel, which I love. And I am 100% on board with her theory for uh, your general plot structure. And I use it for every novel I write and it works amazing. But in that book, she outlined some scene structure. And for whatever reason, just the way I'm wired, it did not click with me. Didn't seem important. It wasn't how I thought. And so I went on my merry way thinking that I understood scene structure even though I wasn't going to use that system. And I didn't. My scenes were fat, bloated, needed to have a lot cut out. Even, wow, I with the book I just published, I think I completely rewrote at least half the scenes just because they lacked focus. And what I eventually realized is that I can create a scene structure that's built for Deus Slam. Now it's and it ended up being very similar to Cam Wilde's structure, but I just used different terminology, and I used some core ideas that were really meaningful to me in crafting stories. And instantly, my writing probably doubled in quality. If you ever have a writer friend who reads your book and then recommends a book on a certain thing, like you need to read a book on showing instead of telling, <laughs> or you need to read a book on structuring your scenes, you need to take that advice really seriously because. You're exactly right. Often authors are really good at certain things. Like maybe they're really good at dialogue. Man, when characters are talking to each other, sparks are flying off the page and it's really interesting. But there are some other elements like the plot is just gets lost, right? The, the conversations are so interesting. The plot get lo- gets lost. So somebody's like, here, here's a structure novel on how to make a better plot. Take that into account. Read those books and, and really listen. And again, don't tell yourself you're the exception. Like, oh, I don't understand this. Therefore, I don't need it. No, if you don't understand it, you need to read another book on that topic. Keep reading books on topics until you understand it. You need to understand the rules enough so that you know when you're breaking them, why you're breaking them, and why breaking that rule won't hurt you. And that requires a great level of mastery. And and it's the simplicity on the other side of the complexity. You have to climb the hill of understanding before you can earn the right to break the rules. Right. If you don't click with what these experts are saying. Don't assume it's their fault. Just assume that it's their presentation style is not for you and go read another guy. 
That's right. And we'll have links to both of these books. So, so as you're mentioning books, I'm taking notes of them. So we'll have 5,000 Words an Hour by Chris Fox and Structuring Your Novel, Essential Keys for Writing an Outstanding Story by K.M. Weiland. Those are both excellent books. And I guess while we're talking about books, what are some other books that helped you uh, along the way? Mm, fiction is probably highest on the list. And The Book Thief would be one of the, the biggest ones because I actually sat down to hand copy the book thief several years ago. I got out a little writing desk so I wouldn't get carpal tunnel syndrome. And I got out a little journal and I got about 15% of the way through the novel, which is a ton of hand copying. I, I didn't finish because that's way too much. But that revolutionized the way I wrote prose because if you've ever read the book thief, uh, Marcus Zuzek is a wizard with words, an absolute wizard. And I'm not as good as him, but I picked up a couple of his tricks and I've been able to use them. So emulating those people, I like to think of how painters will go find a master painting and will try to recreate it. And I think, well, why don't writers do that? So that's something I've tried to do is really put in work like, like I'm at school, like I'm at college, and this is an assignment. Try to copy the masters. Don't just let it happen passively. That's really great. And the hand copying, that is a technique that's been used for centuries by authors to learn another author's technique and to force themselves to better understand it. A more modern version of that is to write fan fiction in another author's world. And this is, I think, really helpful for fantasy authors because there's a lot of work that goes into world building and character creation. And you got to create a good fantasy world or science fiction world. And that's a lot of work, but it doesn't really help you with crafting a good scene. So you're like, you know what? I'm going to write a scene that takes place in Narnia. And the mm -hmm. world building has been done for me. And I'm going to use the characters that already exist. I'm going to write and I'm going to play in somebody else's sandbox. And you can't publish it, but it can be really helpful because you're like, oh, even with this very popular cinematic world, I'm writing with these Marvel characters or I'm writing with Star Wars characters or whatever. And all that work's done for you, the scene's still boring. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, I, now I know what to work on. It's not, I don't actually need to do more world building. I need to learn how to do whatever it is. And, and it helps you focus your practice in a more deliberate and productive way. Yeah, that's good. You're not going to blame it on C.S. Lewis then. <laughs> what else did you learn the hard way? So I talked about that method of scene structure that I developed. And what that actually came out of was another struggle is when I realized that I had characters who had goals, but they were still boring. The scenes flopped. And it suddenly struck me, people set goals at New Year's all the time. And I roll my eyes when I hear about it a lot of the time because you expect they aren't going to be fulfilled. And it taught me something about goals that goals are not really alive in and of themselves. They're just something to be held accountable to. But what makes character fascinating is when they're obsessed about something. So I really got rid of goals from my vocabulary. I now just talk about characters' obsessions. Because uh, if you think of an obsession, you're not going to diddy-daddle around the palace courts. No, you're going to go and uh, get involved in the political intrigue or whatever you're doing. Uh, whatever the goal is, you're going to have a lot of conviction. You're going to have a lot of emotion around your obsession. So just picking obsessions for characters has made them come alive so much more, and it's kept me from writing fluff. They have to have a really strong desire. It can't be this vague goal of like, someday 
I want to be a rock star. Yeah. <laughs> There's a book I read that did this really well. It's one of the Monster Hunter International books. So it's this story about these hillbillies with shotguns who hunt down <laughs> vampires. It's a little overstated, but that's kind of what it is. And it's a lot of fun, right? The, the idea of libertarians versus zombies is, you know, <laughs> and it's my kind of book. And one of the characters, her child is stolen by vampires who plan to sell the child on this auction to evil beings to the highest bidder at a point in the future. And they're not going to harm the child between now and then. And this mother tears the world to pieces to get her baby back. <laughs> like She leaves Europe in shambles. And, and as, as a parent, right, because I'm reading this book and I've just recently had my first uh, child. I was a new dad and I was reading this book and I was like, I would be doing all of these same things. Like, if I were reading that book as a single man, I'm like, she's being a little reckless here. I don't know about this, but I'm like, <laughs> I am all in. Like, I feel that motivation. <laughs> I'm like, you get those vampires. Yeah, <laughs> and it yeah. was, and it was a, and the bigger point here, I'm not saying you have to have your characters kidnapped vampires, but you need to have some motivation that resonates with your target reader. And as a new dad, that particular story really resonated with me because the idea of a vulnerable child being taken away was just like a really moving plot and you can come up with other character motivations that will resonate with other kinds of readers right some people that wouldn't have resonated with them at all yeah that really grabs me that idea i'm like i'll have to read this now Uh, what are some other marketing mistakes that you learn the hard way this isn't necessarily a lesson on how to market but i for the longest time took i guess these marketing gurus with a bit too much optimism. And I thought, oh, you know, I've got these great ideas. I'm actually doing them. Surely this book will turn out amazing and sell thousands of copies. And you no, know, I haven't exhausted everything I can do. And I plan to keep on learning from my, my mistakes and doing better. But that didn't happen. It wasn't an instant bestseller. And while that's you know disappointing in some sense, the, the bigger failure is then what I missed out because of that incorrect belief. It made it harder for me to balance my uh, writing with other parts of my life. I, I was married this year. I probably would have been married a year earlier or so if I hadn't had so much struggle figuring out how to balance writing with other business endeavors because that put me behind in being able to provide a full-time income. There are two different kinds of jobs in this world. There are big dip jobs and little dip jobs. So being a plumber or an accountant or a lawyer is a little dip job. You go to school, that's the dip, but you're done, you graduate, you get your plumber certification and you're making $100,000 a year, $150,000 a year. Being a plumber pays really good. (laughs) It pays better than most of the things you do in college, especially right now. Being an electrician, it's really good. And the top electrician and the bottom electrician, they're paid pretty close. Maybe the top electrician's making three times more, five times more than a, a beginner electrician, maybe 10 times. But it's it, they're in the same universe. Things like being an author, being a professional musician, being a professional athlete, the curve, if you look at the income distribution, doesn't look like that. It's a huge dip where you're learning how to get good and to build an audience and you're making no money. And the difference between the number one author and the you know the best most successful author and the least successful author is like a billion times. <laughs> it's yeah. not five times, it's not ten times, it's a billion times. And the difference between the number one author and the number two author 
might be millions of dollars difference. And the number two author is not that much worse. Right? It's a difference between the person who comes in fourth in the Olympics and the person who comes in first. They're in the same pool, they're swimming neck and neck. It's just one hand's breadth difference. But one person's on the podium and the other person's not on the podium. And mm-hmm. the you know, success is not evenly distributed, which makes writing a difficult profession to support a family uh, if you haven't worked your way past that dip. And most people don't. And most people can't because part of what makes a book fun, especially in fiction, is reading the book that everyone else is reading. And so mm-hmm. those, as you do gain success to him who has more is given. These are uncomfortable truths, right? This is not an industry with a healthy middle class. There are wealthy people and there are starving people. There's not very many middle class authors. There's more. And I'll say indie publishing, people who are able to write quickly and write a kind of book that a certain kind of reader wants to read and they learn how to advertise. They're able to make a middle class income. And that's, I think, amazing because it's important to have writers who are able to live in the normal world and aren't either starving or are millionaires and to have authors who are able to fund what they're doing. And I'm seeing more and more of that in indie writing. There are some middle-class authors who are able to make enough to support their family, but they're not super wealthy, but there's maybe as many of them as there are super wealthy authors. Like the distribution statistically follows what's called the Pareto distribution. So there's three or four different statistical distributions that are really common in the natural world. So there's a standard distribution, which we all learned in school. And that's like height and weight follow that distribution. And how much plumbers and electricians make follows that distribution. (laughs) Most electricians make somewhere in the middle. And then there's this kind of curve off on both sides. Musicians and athletes, they follow the Pareto distribution, which is to the moon or to the floor and almost nothing in between. And if you Google it, Pareto distribution, sometimes called the 80-20 rule, it will really enlighten you to a whole different way the world works. Dave, where can people find out more about you and more about your book? Well, I would really encourage uh, anyone who's a writer to go to storyambers.org. We have a podcast that goes on into the craft of writing. We have a blog. You can get short fiction poetry published on there as well. And there's plenty more we do. Uh, so it's a great resource for writers to learn the craft. And I'm heavily involved there. As far as my book, the title is The Song Killer's Symphony, epic fantasy novel. A young man goes on a quest to conquer his inner demons through the, the rigors of the heroism he has to go through. We'll have a link to The Song Killer's Symphony and to storyembers.org in the show notes at christianpublishingshow.org. Deus Lamb, thank you so much for joining us today on The Christian Publishing Show. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, and I hope you don't all have as many failures as I did. Deus Lamb, I really applaud your courage and willingness to share your hard-learned lessons, and I really do hope people take your lessons to heart so that they don't have to learn them the hard way themselves. If you would like to learn more about my mastermind groups or to get coaching from me, go to christianpublishingshow.com and click the coaching link in the main menu. Starting to get help, starting to get mentorship can be just that simple. Our sponsor today of the blog post version of this episode is the Christian 
Indie Publishing Association. SEPA offers discounts, educational materials, and marketing tools to make your indie publishing experience easier and more profitable. In other words, if you're looking for help, if you're looking for mentorship, if you're looking for discounts, SEPA can help you out with over 40 publishing resources that they give you discounts on, including ISBNs, book printing, audiobook production, book brush, and so much more. To learn more, go to christianpublishers.net. That's christianpublishers.net. The Christian Publishing Show is a production of Author Media. This episode's audio was edited by William Umstadt, blog post by Shauna Lettler, and the producer is Lori Christine. I am Thomas Umstadt Jr., your host. To find the blog post version of this episode, visit christianpublishingshow.com slash 124. Thank you for listening, and live long and prosper.